The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. I don't know if the titles of talks get published or not. Anybody know what the theme of today is? It's a mystery. I could change it. The theme of today, because sometimes I get asked when I teach, and I'm like, oh yeah, is uh, Mac Mindfulness and Spiritual Materialism. (laughs) Mac Mindfulness is defined as wanting to get mindfulness cheaply, quickly, and conveniently. (laughs) Amazon Mindfulness. Actually, you can get things that are really good quality on Amazon. (laughs) McDonald's might taste good to some people, but the quality, you know, I don't know. Um, And spiritual materialism is practicing to get stuff, to get rid of stuff. Um, I think there are three things I want to mention about mindfulness. One is how to avoid getting into a pit where you are demanding stuff from your mindfulness practice. Secondly, is when you meet Mac Mindfulness at work or at somebody who wants to become a teacher and make a lot of money with their mindfulness trademarked place, how not to be so judgmental about it? Like, ooh, I'm the, I'm the right mindfulness. You're the wrong mindfulness. <laughs> and then thirdly, just the kind of um, the really common things that can happen whenever there's a religion or a system of thought. Uh, where people just lose the plot. And instead of working at the spirit of what the religion was or the organization was, you go kind of sideways. Yeah? Sound good? It's like a, sound like a good topic, right? You could probably study months. Um, so moving to California was quite interesting to see all the Dharma products that are offered in the Bay Area in San Francisco. <laughs> um, you know the, what's called the insight tradition or the Theravada tradition or the early Buddhism tradition. Um, so I spent most of my 20s as a monk. Those of you that know me know that. And then I had never practiced Buddhist meditation without being a monk. So I started meditating at 16 in different traditions, but I had never practiced with a lay sangha. So I came back and I met Mark. This didn't exist. I donated a few books. And they were like, yeah, come to Common Ground. And uh, I couldn't. I felt like I had just gotten through a divorce with 50 people. And we never take lifetime vows. And then people would be like, why did you disrobe? And I'm like, is that what you do? You ask people, like, why did you get divorced? <laughs> you know, like, I found it really jarring for people just to ask casually, why did you leave? Because it was very painful to leave. And the reasons were complicated. I have an elevator speech. <laughs> <laughs> they ask, you know, they asked for a seven commitment. I did my seven commitments, so I left. It's not a lie, but it's more complicated. You know, there's things like the way women were treated in the thing, you know, how can I teach younger monks to be in a tradition where women are not treated with respect? How can I live with that? That's one aspect. I don't talk about it very much. There's other aspects that is really hard. And the robes are so ugly. (laughs) (laughs) Really, like... 
the Zen tradition has these lovely robes, you know. Anyway. Um, so I came here, and I was like, oh, this is how Buddhism is practiced here. That's interesting. It took me a while to kind of, you know, get into the fold of common ground. And then going to California, I call it the bullet point uh, mindfulness thing, that they sell you mindfulness, and this is what you will get out of it. And this is from a postcard that I saw. So your anxiety will be gone. You will sleep better. Your brain will be like, woo, like really good. And your relationships will be better. You'll work. Like it just it promises all these things. That's not a lie, actually. That could happen. But when, when you're entering a spiritual practice with all the things that you want to get rid of and all the things you want to gain, that can be a stumbling block. Because letting go is something that nobody can teach you. It's a blessing. It's a grace. When you forgive, when you feel gratitude, when you're like, this is the present moment. Life sucks, and here I am. Dukkha, the end of dukkha. That's the teaching of the Buddha. Dukkha is that which is difficult to withstand. So whether you're the Queen of England or the person cleaning the floor, they feel suffering. And so when you enter, and you're like, okay, I'm going to do mindfulness, I'm going to do this, and then what happens is that you get in touch with your anger. I want to stop this meditation. I want my bullet points. This is an investment. I'm going to sit here, and I want my mind to get calm. Mindfulness is not a relaxation exercise. Mindfulness is not a relaxation exercise. Mindfulness is not a relaxation (laughs) exercise. It's allowing you to get the dust out of your eyes. When Brahma Sahampati asks the Buddha after his enlightenment, will you teach? He's like, nah. Out of compassion for those who have little dust in their eyes, please teach the Dhamma. And so wisdom defined as knowing the way things are is not about relaxation. So in my tool, I started meditating at 16. I'm a high school teacher. I'm a new school. And when I tell kids that I've never been drunk, they laugh. They don't believe it. I'm like, what? You've never been drunk? I'm like, I've never needed to. I've never been. Oh, actually, I was high by accident once. I, was just, I ate something by accident. who got me high. Um, but, you know, I, I was like, if in college I wanted to dance on top of a table, I would. I didn't need to be drunk, you know? And, and so I get, I get that meditation can give you something that is beyond pleasure. The higher Krishnas call it a higher taste. Yeah? So I don't want to say that you're not going to gain anything, but, but I got in touch with my anger when I was 25. In my family, showing anger was considered uncouth. That's not what you do. You always have to look calm. And all of a sudden, I got so annoyed because my karma was ripening, right? I was just angry about everything for about a month. And as you meditate, you get to know it's so humbling, isn't it? Meditation can be so humbling. 
here I am, you know, I, might have, I have three degrees. And when I meditate, I'm like, oh, my God, all I've been thinking is, like, Madonna's Vogue. Like, <laughs> by the way, when I was doing that, I forgot what I was doing. And I'm like, I hope nobody's watching me because I, <laughs> I forget the sequence. I just like moving my hands. Um, so how do you not fall into the tip of my mindfulness. You know, there are so many things now, like you can find mindfulness cards, mindfulness books, mindfulness YouTube things. Mindful- There's so much. Use it. Use it as a tool, but check your attitude. See, like, and it's, it's not easy sometimes. Like, you know, like, I got in touch with my anxiety when I was a monk. It, like, it just all, it, it registers right here. And I wanted to know two things. Why am I having it? What is the origin? Because if I know why, then I'll get rid of it. And then that was the second one. How do I get rid of it? So I went to Ajahn Sumedho. How do I get rid of this anxiety? And I honestly wanted a, like, a magic mantra or a practice. <laughs> He's like, Katanyutu, that was my monk's name. Really look into it. Really pay attention. I'm like, shut up. Like, <laughs> that's, that's what you're going to do. So that's part of it. But the other part, and then the anxiety has come up in the last two weeks in this new school. I have four classes, and one of the classes, they're just not having me. They're like, we don't like you. We don't want to do anything. And discipline issues. And the trick is to know, when am I just observing this anxiety, and when do I need medicine? Yeah? Because mental health, has you have to take care of yourself. Sometimes you have to know, when do I need therapy? When do I need to observe this pain? And, and I think doing both is, is great. And so as Buddhism, as Buddhism has traveled, you know, it went to Tibet, it got with a bone tradition, so they have a lot of things in Tibet that they don't have in Korea. If you go to Afghanistan, when Buddhism was in Afghanistan, they created all those beautiful statues by Greek sculptures. But we don't know how they practice in Afghanistan, what was used to be called Gandhara. Buddhism comes here, and it's getting mixed with psychotherapy, which is amazing. You know, you blend those two. That's really powerful medicine. But it's also being blended with materialism. So we're the most wasteful culture humanity has seen. We are a culture of convenience. My husband has put now all these smart things on the house. So I'm like, Alexa, turn the lights on. And like, there's everything. There's buttons for everything now. <laughs> And sometimes they go crazy, but I'm like, okay. Turn my lamp to 50% in warm light. And said, boom. (laughs) But you know, if you look at how many humans are alive and how many humans have been alive, how many of them just turn their wrist and get clean water? It's such a rare, rare, rare experience to have clean water. And of course, gratitude is knowing what you've received. That was my monk's name, Katanya, to one who feels gratitude. So you avoid mindfulness by also paying attention to what you have and by not wanting things to be quick. In the suttas, in the scriptures, there are four people that the Buddha identifies. One who progresses slowly but easily. One who progresses slowly in a difficult way. One who progresses quickly in a difficult way and one who processes quickly and easily. And we all want this fourth one. (laughs) And he doesn't say one is better than the other. This is the karma of people. 
Karma is quite an expensive, it's also a pre-Buddhist term, and it can mean different things. So Mac mindfulness, uh, watch it in yourself. Are you practicing to achieve something? And in the suttas, the word attainment is used. Do this, and you will attain anagami. Or, you know, there's these stages of, of, of the wise ones, like the non-returner, or that, you know, you're going to be reborn in a heaven and get enlightened there, or, or you're, you know, the arahant who's fully enlightened. So I remember reading all those things, and I'm like, it's like doing a master's degree. You do this, you get enlightened. I always say, it's like I wanted my enlightenment diploma. I'm going to do A, B, and C. Sila, Samadhi, Panya. I'm going to be a good person. Then I'm going to meditate. And then I'm going to be really wise. And I'll just be enlightened. It doesn't work like that. First of all, because it's not linear. And that's why spiritual resumes don't impress me. Because you could have a 13-year-old who's much wiser than I am. But that 13-year-old may not be invited to get up here. You know. I mean, I could have published 17 books. And Buddhism. <laughs> you still don't know what I do when I'm by myself. <laughs> what my thoughts are. What my actions are. Um, so. Second thing is, what if you notice this mindfulness? Because uh, now you're having it in schools, you're having it at work. I met a guy who's trying to make a living teaching mindfulness in businesses so that people will make more money so that the owners of the businesses will make more money. So he said, I just came from a calling center, so I'm training the calling center people so they can be mindful, so they can have better service to the providers, so that people, so I'm selling it to the owners of the business. I will teach mindfulness so that your business will make more money. There are worse things he could do. I just thought of Greece. You know that reference? Rizzo? Anyway. <laughs> That's how my mind works. I don't know. Okay. Um, so if you encounter that, and then you say something like, ooh, at Common Ground, they do the real mindfulness. This is like Mac mindfulness. Watch that. And you might have something useful to say. Say, hey, you know, maybe we can approach it like that. Or just watch it. You know, if people are like, okay, we're going to do our mindfulness, three minutes. And, okay, we're done with mindfulness. And just realize that, that people are using that word the way they're using it, and you don't have to have a conflict. Um, and, and again, you know, things that I've seen in California where someone went to two retreats, they did three books, and now they're a teacher. And because it's actually not that hard to say, close your eyes, watch your breath. <laughs> like I just did. Close your eyes, watch your breath. I'm a teacher. And then the danger is, what if this person does start something, and then somebody's karma ripens, and they get in touch with some grief? Who's going to catch them? You know, how do you steer people to the right meditation? You know, it can be, can be dangerous. just want to remind you that you being here is supporting everybody. You have this lovely, sunny Minnesota morning. You could be walking around the lake, but here you are indoors, right? And sometimes it's easier to sit with people than to sit by yourself. So you being here, you are giving a gift to the people sitting next to you. 
I want you to, to really uh, know that. I wonder if there's any, uh, up to three, don't have a lot of time, if there's anybody that would like to share, and you would start with, I heard, just from this two minutes. Sometimes you hear some things like, oh, it would be nice if everybody heard that. And it's okay if there isn't. But I wonder if there's anybody who wants to do an I heard. Everybody's a teacher in some ways. Morning. I heard um, leaving the church because it's bound up with white supremacy and a question about how to survive and not be monetized. Mm-hmm. Big ones. So I just told her to text me when she figures it out. <laughs> it's a good question. Yeah, yeah, excellent. We have one and then one more. I heard just be here with no expectations. Ooh. That'd be a nice t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Be here without any expectations. I would wear that. <laughs> Organic cotton. I heard it's a practice. It's a practice, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, and the last one, you know, there's... Whenever you have human beings together, you're going to find craziness. The grass is not going to be greener, purple, blue. If you've got humans together, there's going to be difficulty. It's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. So there are people right now who are trying to find the pure early Buddhism through scholarly work. They are translating things. They are retranslating things. From so the Tibetan Sanskrit, checking it with the Pali, checking it with the Chinese. This is what the Buddha really meant. This sutta is later. This sutta is earlier. And if we get to it, then we're going to get this pure Buddhism. So, for example, there are suttas from the Gandhara period that will say the Buddha was here. It would have been almost impossible that the Buddha would have been in that region. Because he lived in the opposite region. But there's a sutta saying that the Buddha was there. So, and there are psychic powers. You can be in two places at once. So maybe that's what happened. But this is the thing. If I were the Buddha talking to you right now, your interpretation of what I said tomorrow would be different. That's where I stand. It's like so, some people think the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, was not said by the Buddha. Okay, so you think that. There are some people who think that the Dhammachakapavatana Sutta, the first sutta that the Buddha said, his enlightenment statement, what I use to guide my life, was not said by the Buddha. If it's proven 100% that the Buddha never spoke the first discourse, it doesn't change me. It doesn't change what it is. I grew up Catholic. I've started going back to Mass because I like the rituals. And the church I go to is really nice and sweet. And I'm learning about the Christ principle. When Richard Ward says, you know, the first Christ, the first incarnation of Christ was the Big Bang. It's just mystery having a physical form. 
So there's a guy named Jesus, his last name wasn't Christ. But he's symbolic of a Christ principle. The goddess Isis was the virgin mother. Yeah? And so he has to have a virgin mother. But I've been to the Vatican. Actually, uh, I lived in Italy for three months as a monk. And sometimes I would, I would go and I'm like, wow, look at all of this. <laughs> they made marble look like cloth. And of course, Jesus wouldn't recognize that as something. And you go to the temples in Thailand or Sri Lanka or Burma, and it's like, whoa, same thing. Lots of mirrors. Would the Buddha have recognized that? So now we've got to get to pure Buddhism. <coughs> what is that? So Ajahn Chah, my teacher's teacher, used to say, read your heart. The citta. The citta is the mind-heart. So he told Ajahn Sumedho, who had a master's degree from Berkeley, he said, don't read for five years. That was his assignment. You're not in touch with your body. You don't even know when you're walking, when you're sitting. Don't read for five years. You have to read your mind. And Ajahn Sumedho actually did it. He followed his teacher's instructions as a monk. (laughs) For us, it would be difficult, right? So as, as we sit here at Common Ground, as we try to practice, it's, it's this balance of trying, because there is, there is something called right effort. And what is the definition of right effort? That which is bad, don't do it. <laughs> that which you're doing that's good, continue doing it. And if there's something good that you're not doing it, then do that. That's it. That's the definition of it. But then to define what is good... And what is, you know, whatever, it, it, it can be so tricky in today's world where we're bombarded with so many temptations and messages. And, right? Like this delicious food everywhere. Right? I feel so full. My mother, I don't know, Latino mothers, there's so much food at the breakfast and it's all yummy, you know, and I'm like, <sighs> food. That's why I don't think I'm that impressive, you know, because I'm like, I just ate too much. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like... But, you know, like something as simple as eating is so difficult in today's world. There's guilt around it. There's shame around it. Should, should it be all organic? And, you know, every other two years, there's a major diet or something. I was talking to a friend of mine about the ketogenic, ketogenic? How do you say that? Keto- yeah. Like, the best thing. I'm like, Okay. <laughs> I remember being a vegetarian, stopping being a vegetarian, starting again. And uh, all the judgmental stuff about just what I eat. Anybody has ever met a self-righteous vegan? (laughs) (laughs) And that's, that's the thing, you know, like what if you celebrate being a vegan and then what other people are doing is what other people are doing. And I think that can happen to religion as well. When you're like, Jesus is the only way. Like, really? Like... That's what you believe? It's so tiny. But Buddhists will do the same thing. So the Buddhists in in Myanmar who are oppressing Muslims, the Buddhists who are oppressing women. So many of the scriptures of women were erased. Hmm? So much of the imagery is male. 
So as we inherit any, all of these things, and it's like, how do we practice? How do I get to the present moment? I, and that's why I'm going back to some of the Catholic things, because I was saying at the retreat yesterday that I see myself as bilingual. Like, I speak Buddhism and I speak Catholicism. Because the mystics were talking about the same thing. <laughs> God is love. What? See, in English, that makes no sense in some ways. And love is full consciousness, full attention. When you give full attention to something, that actually is an expression of love. So God is full attention. And when you say the will of God, you know, somebody died and says the will of God, that's kind of a horrible thing at the surface level. However, if you are bilingual and you translate the will of God to the way things are. The fact is that we all are going to die. We don't know when. We don't know how for the most part. And when you say it was the will of God, it it just means it's the way things are. There's no bad. There's no judgment. Because unity consciousness with Christian mystics talk about it, the Franciscans talk about it, the Benedictines talk about it. They talk about levels until you find the path. You know, like the dark night of the soul that St. John talks about. People think that it's a difficult time. Also, the darkness, the dark night of the soul is a way to describe yoga, that which is unified. And so religion is simply poetry. It's just metaphors to explain that which cannot be explained. Mindfulness cannot be explained. Mindfulness cannot be taught. Maybe we call it mindfulness with a big M. And that's why Ajahn Sumedho, he finishes every single Dhamma talk chanting the Pali that says mindfulness is the door to the deathless. What on earth does that mean? Mindfulness is the door to the deathless. For years, I was like, what is the deathless? Because the Nibbana Sutta, the Sutta on Awakening, says there is an unborn, an unoriginated, an uncreated. If this didn't exist, then escape from the created, from the originated, would not be possible. But because it exists, then it is possible. What does that poetry mean? There's no self in Buddhism. And this unoriginated, this mystery, that which gives rise to the Big Bang and to our sadness and to our dukkha, this mystery, here we are in this little planet. (laughs) It's crazy. (laughs) And when you get in touch with that, when you're out of the way, No self is not a doctrine. It's a simple description of pure awareness. And, you know, so many ways to try to define it, right? And so there are people who are teaching mindfulness who have never experienced mindfulness. I used to call them Dharma parrots. And and I'm still a Dharma parrot. And, you know... 
Sometimes a parrot can say exactly what you needed to hear. So I'm a Dharma parrot. You know. And also, one of the things that this monk said, you know, that Richard Rohr, is that the people who get a taste of God or peace or non-self or as, they will continue to meditate. Because I used to think to myself, the Buddha got enlightened. Why did he continue meditating and being a monk? Like, no, seriously, like, why was he wearing rag robes? Like, you're fully enlightened. And the reason is, is that meditation is what enlightened people do. <laughs> you know, you go in, and so when I do walking meditation now in the train in San Francisco and whatever, I'm grounding myself. And when I'm feeling the anxiety, it's so distracting. It's tough. You know, when you're dealing, like, if you're dealing with grief, there's no cure for it. If, if somebody you love has just died, there's no cure for that. You know? And people say, don't resist. Well, what does that mean? You know, being in the middle of something difficult. And so, you know, I'm like, I have so many tools in my box after, how old am I? 48, 16, so yeah been practicing meditation for more than 30 years. And when I'm in the middle of it, I'm like, okay, I need an anxiety candy. So uh, there's this candy that you can buy, flower Bach medicine candy, and it's anti-anxiety. And I just gave myself some medicine. But, I, but, I, but I'm talking to myself as I'm like, I'm feeling anxiety. It's the way things are. It's impermanent. And it still feels horrible. Like, it's feel, I wanted to go, you know, and I'm like, am I attached to wanting to go away? Or like, I still get into that. And that's, the, that's where the Buddha started to teach the most mundane experience, which is suffering. So you have some religions that will start at like, ooh, not, you know, unity, consciousness. You start there. And then it's kind of depressing. And then how does the Buddha start? There's dukkha. That's his first noble truth. The most common, most uninteresting, most kind of sucky thing is where he starts. But what, you know, what a gift to really like, yeah, this is it. I look at unsatisfactoriness, and then there's also the end of it. So it's pretty cool. So mindfulness, it exists. It is now part of the United States of America. Uh, you will meet people who will want to make money out of it. You will meet people that are sincere, people that are half sincere. So you, you continue to do what you do. I met a guy who is at a luxury resort in Southern California, and he has a business card that says Mindfulness Director. Because <laughs> you can go on mindfulness cruises now. You can go to $3,000 weekend retreats. And maybe that's what people need. Maybe they need to practice in heaven and they'll get enlightened there. Well, I don't know. If you're super billionaire, why not spend $3,000? That's a good investment. Actually, I'm happy that they're doing that. You know, if you need your cotton sheets to be organic and really good quality for you to meditate, go for it. You know, I don't have to be judgmental about it. Does that make sense? And so as we practice the mystery, you know, have your, have your practice day to day, this mystery that we're living in, and 
take it from there. We have a couple of minutes for any questions or comments. Um, um, I wonder if anybody has a comment or a um, thing to finish the day. So we have a thing here. One of the uh, thoughts I had as you were talking about the commercialization of mindfulness, one of the things that I f find that's different with mindfulness here is that mindfulness is part of a community and, you know, and, and part of wisdom. The goal of mindfulness here is wisdom as opposed to commercial mindfulness a lot of times is just for the immediate effect and relaxation, that kind of thing. So it misses that whole community aspect and mindfulness part. Yeah, yeah. Not absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So it's really good fortune, right, like to have a place like this. Um, thank you for everything today. Um, this is my first time here. I find maybe one of the most challenging things about right now, both now now and the bigger now, is how to um, find any path to, and I know reconcile is too strong a word because we've, might should resist the idea of needing to reconcile. The idea that if God is love means things are how they are, how do we, how do we reconcile that with injustice mm -hmm. yeah. and politics, frankly? Yeah, yeah um, I just have to say that the word God is incredibly complicated. So in Latin is Deus, and Zeus in Latin is Zeus. So Deus... And Zeus became intertwined, and he became a white, angry guy. And then in the Jewish scriptures, he can be an angry god as well. But in the Jewish scriptures, you can also have a god that is expansiveness. And, and so I don't want to go into the god talk because it's, it's, it's complicated. But to say the way things are, there's no reconciliation needed. It's actually perception. So if you think that the way things are should be benevolent and just, then that is an opinion. Hmm? If the way things are, if you think the universe should be just, that is an opinion. So a volcano cannot erupt because there's a village nearby. A volcano does what a volcano does. It's like a zit. It can't help itself. It just kind of... <laughs> I lived in a volcano country. So the earth shakes. That's the way it is. The earth shakes. If there are houses on that earth, the houses are going to fall. You see? And the wisdom to get so big, because you zoom in, you look at your body, you zoom out, you look at the universe, that zooming in and zooming out is an interesting practice. So, um, yeah. And, and I get what you're, what you're saying, because Christians have a really difficult time, or people that believe in a God have a really difficult time saying, why did this happen? Buddhists will say that happened, you know, if humans did that, it's because there are three things, greed, hatred, and delusion. Everything can be cataloged into one of those three. Why did someone do that? It's because they're ignorant, <laughs> or they have some hatred or some anger, or they're greedy, and that's what we do. Thank you. That was a big one, religion. Yeah. I was really struck by uh, when you said religion is a metaphor. Uh, and I wondered if you could just say a little bit more about that. Yeah. Here in Spanish, we have a word liga, which is like a tie. 
which comes from the Latin. So religare means to retie so that you have union, which is yoga. So religion is the system that helps you, right? So it can be rituals, it can be what you eat, it can be what ceremonies. So the word religion actually can mean all of this. But the scriptures, all of this stuff, when you look at that which cannot be explained and religion is trying to explain it, that's what I mean by metaphor. So something that I do is I will look at something that doesn't make sense and I will ask, is this trying to teach something? Is this story about... Noah with some animals in the seed, is that teaching me anything? Is it poetry? You know, the cosmology of Buddhism, there's lots of goddesses and gods and all of that. And so what I mean by that is that poetry, and you know, we're not in a poetry-loving country for the most part compared to some other countries. It gets to a nuance. It gets under the layer. For example, the Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, to me, that's a poetry that I understand at this level, not at the words. So when I was a kid, I would never recite the creed, which was the, I believe in this, I believe in this. I never have, because I don't believe in it. And so what I mean by that is that um, if you actually, and it's not even an experience, but if you are in silence, or if you are in a state of grace, or if you are just in like, This is the present moment. You get so, you know, it's, it's an expression of love, actually. And it's an expression that cannot be explained. I don't know if I made any sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm taking off of this woman's uh, comment earlier. So if the ultimate mantra is, this is the way it is, and I look out at the world, and I'm very sad and very disheartened over and over and over again, and I don't like the injustice and the way people are being treated, aren't I called as a part of my Buddha nature to engage in something that helps alleviate that? But that is kind of wanting something that isn't. So how do you... Yeah, I think I, uh, I'm going to talk about it. The way that I've, I've dealt with this is sometimes thinking, thinking about lenses. Sometimes we look at reality with different lenses. So if you're looking at reality with a social justice issue or a non-patriarchal issue, you're going to see the injustice. And actually the natural way, the compassionate way to respond is to be compassionate. Absolutely yes. That's the answer. Absolutely yes, because you're acting with wisdom and kindness. And so greed, hatred, and delusion have their counterparts. Generosity, wisdom, and loving kindness. And so you do that. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.